Well, Jason had only just begun following Jesus. It was less than two weeks ago that he made the decision after hearing Paul teach in the synagogue at Thessalonica. Paul and his two ministry friends, Silas and Timothy, had talked to him about people treating him differently now that he calls Jesus the Christ and not Caesar. Jesus is God's true king, the one who suffered and and rose from the dead. But he never really thought that his life would be in danger and so soon. These Jews, you see, who hated Paul and his teaching and, and the angry, hostile mob of thugs they had got together were now at Jason's front door, banging on it. And they wanted blood and Jason was scared. Well, thankfully, Paul and Silas, they, they slipped away. But there was no good news for Jason and some other members of this new little church that had formed at Thessalonica. In front of Jason's family, most likely also new believers, they were all physically dragged away, beaten for good measure and thrown in front of the city officials. They were charged. What once, they once had a clean reputation with the law, but not anymore. Now that was tarnished. They were charged, held for a while, and finally released on bail. The Thessalonian church was born. There you go. You can spot some of the places on the, the, the map as we read through before. Uh, there's Thessalonica, and just in the northern eastern side of Greece there. Uh, follow along that in a moment if you can. If you can. But Paul and Silas, well, they, they stayed on. I'm sorry, they moved on to Berea. And they were still being harassed by the same group of Jews. You can see Berea there, just to the, the west of Thessalonica on, on the coast as well. They were still being harassed by these Thessalonian Jews who wanted their blood, who wanted them to stop preaching in the synagogues. Acts 17 tells us they spent a short time in Berea and then they moved on to Athens. Now, Timothy, uh, Timothy didn't go with them at that point, Paul and Silas. Timothy eventually met up with Paul in Athens. We think Timothy made a little side trip to to Philippi. Uh, You can see that to the north of Thessalonica. I know it's very small, I'm sorry about that, but trust me, it's to the north um, and not very far. Uh, so Timothy went over there, but he eventually met up with Paul and probably Silas as well in Athens. Athens 17 speaks of Paul's great speech to the Areopagus. Um, he tells them to, to, they worship an unknown God. Anyway, read that later on if you, if you get a chance. Paul's thrilled to have Timothy by his side now in, uh, in Athens. Timothy is referred to by Paul as his son in the faith. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, you then, my son. He has a great relationship with him, a, a very close relationship with uh, Timothy. He's thrilled to have him by his side in Athens, but he sends him back to Thessalonica. He sends him back to Thessalonica to see how the church was going, to meet up with Jason and his family and this small little church. After a while in Thessalonica, Timothy made his way back to Paul. Paul's now in Corinth, though. He's moved on from Athens. And as chapter 3, verse 6 tells us, Timothy arrives, back to, arrives to Corinth, arrives back to Paul and Silas with some good news. 
the good news of this loving, faithful new group of believers who even in the midst of this terrible suffering that they're going through just for following Jesus, they had welcomed the message of the gospel with joy. 1 Thessalonians, what we have in our hot little hands here this morning, 1 Thessalonians is Paul's first letter to the church in response to Timothy's report and it's dated around 51 AD. It's probably Paul's first letter, actually. Probably his number one, uh, number one letter he wrote out to the churches, pretty early on, 51 AD. So, if you haven't got your Bible open, do that, have it. I hope you grabbed one as you came in. You will be forgiven now if you want to jump up and grab a Bible. Okay, it's okay. It's very important you have it in front of you. You need to check what I'm saying is what is in the Word of God. That's really important. That's your job as well as to listen. Excellent. Okay, good. Um, and also, have open in front of you the little blue outline. Uh, that's fairly close to what I'm going to say. That's excellent. Um, I must admit, I, I had to... There's a deadline to put to, for my... Um, the parish administrator, Kiralee, gave me a deadline and I gave her something and this is pretty close to what I'm about to say now, so that's pretty good, isn't it? There you go, that'll help. Okay. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you are God who speaks to us. Uh, help us Lord, help us to listen. Help, us to me, be, help me to be clear and um, help me to... Uh, yeah, Lord, help, help us to listen to what you have to say to us and put into practice your words, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, it was a rocky start, wasn't it, to this church at Thessalonica. So when we come to Paul, Silas and Timothy's first words in this letter, imagine for a moment their utter delight and encouragement in hearing these words. Look at verse 1. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. They are reminded that even though this church, small in number, seen as outcasts in society, treated as lawbreakers and fools for believing in this Jesus and following these apostles and their teaching, they're reminded that they are so significant. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is their status now. Could there be any greater status than that? This is now who they are. This is their DNA. Let's use that term today. Well, let's use it in a sort of colloquial sort of sense. All right? Not a scientific term. Uh, in the sense that the fundamental and distinctive characteristics or qualities of someone or something. That's sort of how we might use that term DNA. So... In fact, starting with verse 1, this whole chapter describes the DNA of the gospel gathering. The DNA of the gospel gathering, the distinctive characteristics of God's church. So these Christians gathered at Thessalonica are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, God has drawn them to himself, drawn into the presence of God and the Lord Jesus this is God's church, God's doing, God's gathering. 
That, that, that word uh, church just can be translated gathering. Uh, that's the word used for the church in the New Testament. Uh, gathering, God's gathering. God's people drawn together through the power of God's gospel. And friends, isn't this our experience also? Isn't it? God has drawn us together. God's gathering, God's people. It's not about buildings. It's not about traditions or denominations or anything like that. No, no, God's people, different backgrounds, different stories. Ask, talk later on about your story about God. Do it after morning, uh, morning tea if you like. Different stories, different ages, different shapes, different sizes, uh, drawn together through the gospel. So in verses 2 and 3, Paul, Silas and Timothy therefore thank God for this gospel gathering at Thessalonica. And they thank God for the effect that the gospel has, on the, has had on them. So point one on our outline there, thanksgiving. Verse 2, we always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith and your labour prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, and we think it's probably Paul writing, uh, it bears all you know those Paul hallmarks when you read Paul's letters, it sort of fits that way. He seems to be writing on behalf of the other two, we're sort of guessing a little bit, that's okay, it's not that important. But Paul's taking, us, taking uh, a trip down memory lane, if you like, and these are his memories of this church and he thanks or they thank God for them. Just take your mind back for a moment. Take your mind back to one of those holidays or trips away you might have had with friends. You got one on your mind yet? I'll give you a moment. Just that, those great holidays, those great times away that you had with friends. And it was just so good, wasn't it? Now, our church weekend away would be like that, by the way. Um, you know, this holiday you're thinking of right now, this time away with friends... Uh, it wasn't really the scenery, was it? Well, the scenery was pretty good. It was a good time. That was great. Like, it wasn't really the, the weather. Oh, okay, the weather was all right. Maybe it was beautiful. Okay? And, and, and even now, as you think about it sometime later, you're longing for that gathering again. Aren't you? Wouldn't that be nice to go back and have that time again with those friends? But, but for Paul, Silas and Timothy... As they looked back and remembered that gathering, the time they spent with, Thess with these Thessalonians, it was only about three weeks. It wasn't very long. It wasn't the scenery. It wasn't the weather. Uh, it was the people. And more than that, it was God's work in the people that was such an encouragement for them. And so they thanked God. And in verse 3, we read then of the effect of the gospel message on these people in Thessalonica. Three effects. The effect of the gospel message on these people. And note too that the effect is expressed actively. It's lived out. Now, do you remember that um, the kids' movie Toy Story? I think it's Toy Story 2. If you've, done a, if you've done a bit of babysitting with young ones or if you've got young ones and you, know, you remember maybe that, that uh, great movie... Toy Story, there we go, I think it's two or one, I can't remember. But one of the characters is Rex. Now, Rex is the dinosaur, Tyrannosaurus Rex. Ironically, Rex had a confidence problem. Rex, um, 
Now, at the end of the movie, sorry, I'm going to spoil it for you. You'll be right. Um, <laughs> Rex defeats the arch enemy, Zerg. The Zerg, Zerg doesn't even get a look in at the poster. Ah, oh, dear, oh, dear. Poor Zerg. Anyway, Zerg gets defeated by Rex. Rex lives it, so to speak, although he's a toy that came to life. Stay with me. He, he lives it he, in real life. And so at the end of the movie, when the toy pig, and I can't remember the toy pig's name. What is it? Ham. Of course it's ham. Yes. <laughs> funny. <laughs> um, well, the vegetarians are shaking their head. That's not funny at all. So anyway, when Ham, the, the, the toy pig, uh, plays Buzz Lightyear versus Zerg video game, all right, and then he invites Rex to, to play along with him, Rex answers, I don't need to play, I've lived it. I've lived it. The Thessalonians didn't just play or didn't just talk about it, they lived it. That's what they've done, they've lived it. Their lives were characterised by actively following Jesus, even in the context of this dreadful persecution. And no wonder then Paul called the news that Timothy brought back to him good news. No wonder he's thankful. Okay, so the first effect of the gospel message on them is this, their work produced by faith. You see it in verse 3. Paul remembers the Thessalonians' faith or trusting God and that their faith is busy. Their faith is busy. It's active. Their faith in God and His Son, the Lord Jesus, shows itself in good works. That, that's really what the, the word work referred to here, refers to here in work produced by faith. Work means good works. Doing good works is the natural consequence of trusting God. A Christian is not saved by good works, no. Not saved by good works. But they do them because they trust that God's way is the right and best way. They do them simply in response to God's love. Second, their labour prompted by love. It's another effect of the gospel in them. They laboured together in life, which was sometimes tough, we're told. And it was this, it was love that drove them. It was love that, prompt, that prompted them. Now we could also put it this way, they laboriously toiled at love. Now who did they love? And who should they love? Let's do a bit of Bible flicking. I've actually got the verses up on the screen just to save us a bit of time. But 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3, 2 Thessalonians was written about six months later than 1 Thessalonians, we're told. Anyway, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3, same church. Who, who should they love? We ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love you have for all, for one another, is increasing. Who should they love and continue to love? The members of the gospel gathering, their church. You note there, though, and, and we pick it up in, in 1 Thessalonians as well as we keep reading through, love that we have for each other doesn't, and the, the, the church and what they had for each other, doesn't have a ceiling. In other words, they didn't, they didn't re reach a point and say, well, we love each other pretty well. Let's stop there. Let's leave it there. That's really good love. No, 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 it's increasing. We ought to do it more and more. 
we don't, we're not happy with this level. We, we keep going. We keep loving each other. Who else should they love or, or did they love? What about 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13? Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work, live in peace with each other. So who should they love? What well, they should, they, they love their leaders. Uh, those who cared for you in the Lord and who admonish you. That's who they love. What about verse, uh, chapter 1, 4, 9 and 10? Now about your love for one another, this is 1 Thessalonians, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more. So it's not just loving ourselves here in this little community. It's actually, Paul thanks God, Paul, Silas and Timothy thanks God for their love for all of God's family, other Christians as well, love for other Christians. Now, this love Paul refers to I'll tell you today, this is countercultural love. Now that's expressed, let's get Greek nerdy for a minute, okay? Greek nerdy. Uh, <laughs> it's expressed in the Greek word that's being used here. So let me explain. Our, our Bibles in our, in our hands today get it spot on, and it's a very good and confident translation. But this is, I think, pretty helpful. To the Greeks of the day, love was eros love. There we go. The, the normal Greek word used to describe love. You read it in a lot of different places in Greek literature at the time. That's what the word they use. And this love was love to the one who is worthy. That's what it meant. Eros love was love to the one who is worthy. Or it was love that desires to possess so a material possession, a slave, a sexual partner. Uh, I, love my, I love my chariot or I really would love that chariot. I really would love that girl over there, you know what I mean? Uh, that, that sort of love, a possession. I love you because you're so good to me. That's that eros love. But the word we find in 1 Thessalonians and actually throughout the New Testament is not that word eros. It's actually a word agape. It's a different word. It's a different meaning. It's a different culture. Agape, love, is the word used to describe Christ's death for sinners. It's sacrificial. It's humble. It's love for the other person's benefit. We find it in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's agape love. Love, not love for the worthy, but instead love for the unworthy. It's a love given irrespective of merit. A love that seeks to give. A love that we find in the gospel. On the cross, in Jesus' death for sinners like you and me. The gospel gathering must be characterised, driven even, prompted by such love. And the encouraging news brought to Paul was that the Thessalonians were doing just that and more and more. Third effect of the gospel message on them. 
Paul, Silas, and Timothy remember the Thessalonians' endurance by hope. Endurance inspired by hope, I should say. They realize that following Jesus is a marathon. There will be hills and tough climbs. Maybe uh, I was thinking overnight, as I watched a tiny bit of the Tour de France, maybe it's more like that. I watch the Tour de France sometimes, not because I'm into cycling. I watch it simply for the scenery. It is just spectacular. I don't care about the cycling at all. Um, <laughs> I don't know who they are. But the, the scenery is spectacular. I think, oh, I really want to go there one day. Wouldn't that be great? It's breathtaking, the hills and the climbs and, the, and the so on. But what's important, of course, is getting to the end. That's what's important in it all. And what keeps the Thessalonians going is knowing what's at the end. Same with the cyclist, same with the marathon runner. They know what's at the end. That's what keeps them going. Following Jesus, you see, is not unfounded optimism. It's not that at all. This hope that's referred to here in verse 3 is real and certain. It's a confident expectation. Why? Why is it a confident expectation? Why is it real and certain? Look over to verse 10. Look at verse 10. Speaking of Jesus, we wait for his son from, uh, from heaven. See, the Thessalonians have turned, from, uh, turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait actively, I'll get to that in a moment, wait for his son from heaven, who, whom, rescue, whom, uh, whom he rescue, raised, start all over again, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Why do we have a, a confident expectation? Why is this hope real and certain and not unfounded? It's founded optimism. That's what it is, isn't it? Why? Because Jesus is risen. Jesus is alive. That's why. That's why we have a real and certain hope. And that's what keeps the Thessalonian church going through the hills and the climbs and the tough times, and the good times too, no doubt, inspired by hope. And note too that like their faith and love, this hope is active. It's not passively sitting and waiting. You don't win the, the Tour de France by sitting in, on the couch in your lounge room, do you? <laughs> no. You actively run the race, you push the pedals, you endure, as we'll get to later on, you live in the light of Jesus' return where the follower of Jesus will be rescued from the wrath of God. Verse 10 tells us that. So this endurance inspired by hope, again, is the effect of the gospel on them. And we too share in that. This faith, love and hope, yes, we too share in as the gospel takes effect in us. Well, verse 4 gives further reason for this thanksgiving. Paul points to the Thessalonians once again, you see, to their status. He really reminds them of what he said back in verse 1, repeating what he said. They are loved by God. They are chosen by Him. Could there be any greater privilege, any greater reason for thanksgiving? At the heart of this church's DNA, to mix the metaphors, is God's love and choice. Have you ever, we do this with our pet cats, but have you ever gone to pick out a new pet at the animal refuge or the, the council refuge? I, I haven't actually done it. My, my, it turns out Michelle's done it with the kids or whatever. But I take it it works something like this. You, you're walking along and you, the animals are all there and um, 
and, and you're weighing up the options and you, you, you pick out the animal that behaves well. You pick out the animal that sort of loves you back, that looks cute and won't eat a small child. It's that sort of animal you pick out. Um, when God chooses us, he loves despite our ugliness, despite our sinfulness, our rejection of him, our lack of love. It's agape love, isn't it? That's what it is. It's agape love. He loves drawing us to himself irrespective of merit. It's amazing. It's amazing. Well, the rest of the chapter explains how the Thessalonians know they are loved and chosen by God. We're on point three in our outlines. We speed up a little. How we know. So let's read from verse four. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. The gospel message is words. You won't hear the gospel without words. You won't. There's got to be words there. But they're not simply words. For these words, this message came to them with God's power, with God's spirit and with deep conviction. They know they are chosen, loved, because of their reaction to these words. Deep conviction. The Thessalonian Christians heard the gospel and they were convicted that it was true. That it matters. And that this message of forgiveness of sin, of Jesus being God's king, the Christ, um, God's promised king from long ago, uh, this Jesus is risen, they were convicted that this gospel is from God. Has the gospel affected you like that? Has it? Has the gospel affected you like this? That it's true. That it matters. That it matters, that, that it really is the gospel from God. Listen to how they received the word of God. Halfway through verse 5. You know how we lived among you from your sake? You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcome the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you become a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. So well did they, as they received the, the, the word of God, so well did they imitate Paul, Silas and Timothy and the Lord Jesus himself that they became a model to all the believers from one end of Greece to the other, Macedonia to Archaea. They were famous. Now, these days, many of our celebrities are famous for being celebrities. Uh, they're, they're famous for doing nothing, really, aren't they? So many celebrities are like that. It's crazy. Not so with this gospel gathering. They were famous for being like Jesus. Famous for their faith and hope and love. Famous for how they welcome the message and so on. It's like a, a bell being rung out across a silent valley. See verse 8, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Archaea, it's all of Greece practically, 
Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Such was the church's reputation. Again, no wonder Paul, Silas and Timothy thanked God for them. Indeed, this is further evidence of their status with God, loved and chosen. But I wonder how the gospel rang out from them. How did it happen? See, there's no, no emails. Nope. No websites. No Facebook or Twitter to get the message out. Nothing like that. Did you receive one of those texts from a political party during the election campaign? Anyone, anyone get one of them? A few of the, isn't that interesting? Almost everyone in the 8 o'clock service said that, said they did. There you go. Targeting people. Hmm. But of course, there was nothing like that, was there? There's no group texting to get the message out. Maybe they wrote some letters, these Thessalonians, as the gospel rang out from them. Maybe, perhaps they went into the synagogues like Paul did and, and preached the gospel. Well, no, there's not really any evidence of that either. What was it that enabled the gospel to ring out from them? Well, the answer is in their relationships. That's the answer. The gospel rang out from them as they loved, as they shared, as they talked, as they met people. They, they gained their reputation by the way they treated not only each other, but those outside their community too. This again was the effect of the gospel on them and evidence of their status with God. Now, don't put your hands up and tell me or anything, but how many friends do you have? Some of you have quite a few. Let's just say um, for the moment, now I, did, I must admit I'm stealing this illustration from, um, uh, from a sermon. I don't, I don't often listen to other sermons, but I did for this week. Uh, but I stole this illustration, so I'm, I'm sorry about that. But anyway, it's a good one. How many friends do you have? Um, let's just say for a moment we have, we have, let's play it safe, we have five friends each, all right? We've all got five friends because there are more than five people in this building. So that's nice and easy, nice and safe. Let's just say for a moment that there are 80 people here in this building. I'm not quite sure how many people there are. I'm just going to say 80 because I've written it down and I'm not very good at maths and I don't want another number. Um, so 80 people here. So that's with five friends each, that is 400 people. Is that right? Phew. All right, good. I don't know if that's right. 400 people whom we can impact with gospel relationships. 400 just like that, if we have five friends each. Now, I don't want to brag or anything, I reckon I've got ten. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I reckon you might too. Wow, that's a lot of people we can impact with gospel relationships, where the gospel can ring out in our relationships. So I'd like to suggest that one place, of course, we can start is... And as we pray that the gospel rings out from us, is right here in this gospel gathering. Is the Lord's message ringing out from us here? In faith and love and hope, is the Lord's message ringing out from us in the way we treat each other and those outside this little community? I would say yes. And Jesus would say, do it more and more. So starting here in our relationships, let's let the gospel ring out from us.
Let's tie a few things together and, uh, and close up. The DNA of the gospel gathering. That's what I think chapter 1 is all about. Gathered together, drawn together by God through the gospel. Loved and chosen in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an extraordinary gathering. Right here, right now. A gathering where on display is the mercy and kindness of God. We're drawn together by God. Amazing. Surely then this gathering is more important than any other. Wouldn't you think? Wouldn't that be right? See, if we've read this correctly, I might be wrong, I don't know. don't think so. But tell me if I am. But if, if, if I haven't done this right, if true, if chapter 1, what we've been saying is true, it must mean that this gathering here, what we do is more important than, say, Parliament. Parliament's pretty important. But if what we're saying is right, this is more important than that. Absolutely. It's more important, dare I say it, than even the UN. And I think we get a lot more done than the UN Parliament anyway. Um, a bit closer to home, it's more important than soccer club. It's more important than music societies. It's more important than dinner parties. It's more important than concerts. They're gatherings too, aren't they? You name it, you can go on and on. If, if we're right, if this is what the Bible says, amazing, isn't it? Because this gathering has been drawn together by God and by it the gospel rings out as we work and labour in faith and hope and love. And as verse 9 says, as we turn from idols to serve the true and living God and wait for his son who rescues us from the coming judgment of God at his return. Lots to think about, lots to pray about, lots to thank God about too. Let's do that now. Father, we thank you so much for this gathering. We thank you, Lord, that you've put us here. It wasn't by accident or anything like that. It wasn't just a fluke or by chance. Lord God, you put us here. You gathered us together. So, Lord, we pray that the gospel rings out from us. We pray that it continues to do that more and more. Lord, help us with that. We thank you that your, your gospel, your message, your word comes to us in power. Uh, Lord, help us to be convicted by it. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this, uh, this gathering here. And we thank you for the, the great friendship and fellowship we have in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. I think we're going to pray. Yep.